this ministry. Lord, I lift up my wife's friend, Jenny, and uh, her husband, Jack, specifically Jack, and just pray, Father, that he would heal, Lord. And Lord, as they go forth in this new chapter of their life, just praying, Father, that you would bless them. And Lord, I do lift up the graduates this year from our church, and Lord, just uh, relatives of those represented here, and just pray, Father, that you would bless them. Pray, Father, for the life that you have set before them, Lord, that they would achieve all that you would have. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening, praying that you would bless us in your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 47, and as you're turning there... I had the privilege of doing our brother, officiating over our brother Henry's funeral on Tuesday. And uh, there was a good turnout for families and friends, and it was was just a blessing. One of the things that was kind of neat, it's always neat, number one, when you have a believer and, and they give you good stuff to work with that you're able to give their testimony and tell what the Lord has done in their life. And it was kind of neat as I was talking. There was one lady that was off to my left, kind of about halfway back, and she was just into the whole thing. She was smiling and nodding, and you can just tell she was excited. She came up to me afterwards and said she didn't know that Henry had received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and she was excited about that, and she didn't know that the gospel was going to be preached at his funeral. She said she had planned to stand up and preach the gospel if nobody else did. And so that was kind of a cool thing, just to, just to see somebody so excited about Jesus Christ and, and, uh, and the family coming to know him. And then uh, at the end of the sermon, I, I gave an invitation, and two people uh, responded to it. So keep them up in prayer. It's always a good thing, without a doubt. And, you know, you just want to tell Henry, hey, Henry, you know, your testimony and the things that the Lord did, and I know you didn't live this perfect life or whatever, but people got saved because of what God has done in, in your life. And, and, you know, we just, all things work together for the good. It, it was hard. Henry had a hard life. There's no doubt about it, but God used it for his glory. Jeremiah chapter 47, we're going to be pretty much skimming over the next couple of chapters, these chapters of judgment. Not that judgment isn't important, but we went into the details last week as we look at, looked at Egypt. Now the verse that I use, and I'll probably be using it for the next couple of weeks until we finish out the book, uh, is kind of a uh, New Testament cross-reference, but is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, we studied in detail throughout the book of Jeremiah, the warnings given through the prophet and the things that came to pass as far as God's condemnation of Judah and Jerusalem. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. They had no excuse. They knew the word of God. A lot of the things that we saw that they were doing and the sins that they were committing, they were warned against committing those things in the book of Deuteronomy. And they had the word of God. And what does God do when man does not pay attention to his word? Again, he raises his voice by sending the prophet and he sent Jeremiah. And once again, we have this man who has seemingly this very unsuccessful ministry, but it's unsuccessful in man's eye, but in God's eyes, he did exactly what God had called him to do. He said what God had told him to say. And so he proclaimed and pronounced the sins that were going on, the judgment that was due to come, and judgment did come upon the house of God as Babylon entered in and decimated Jerusalem. Now we move on to the consequences to come on the surrounding countries of Israel, those who are of the world, enemies of Israel, and in opposition to God. The book of Jeremiah concludes with a series of oracles concerning the judgment that is to come upon these nations. These nations that we see are the ones that were reflected previously in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now we had been going along in Jeremiah and we came to the place where Israel had been conquered by Babylon They set up a puppet government, made Israel a vassal state. I say Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Basically, the armies went back to Babylon, but then there was those who rebelled, and they murdered the governor that was put there by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and some of his his soldiers. They were frightened, God says through the prophet, just to stay here and I'll protect you. But instead of doing that, they fled to Egypt, and God prophesied the destruction that was going to come upon them 
in Egypt. And we saw that destruction once again last week. Now, the prophecies that are spoken of of these surrounding nations are not necessarily chronological. A lot of these prophecies were delivered previous, but God just wants us to understand, to know that if God's people are disobedient, such as Judah, there's going to be repercussions, but there is also going to be repercussions for the nations. And so the cast of nations, again, obviously is Israel. And again, we saw Egypt last week. Tonight we'll be looking at Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Syria, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that God so loved the world. And what we're seeing here is the judgment of the world. And the judgment of the world is going to be that which breaks the heart of God. Because can you imagine from God's perspective, when it does come time for judgment, again, we're told in Genesis that God says, I will not strive with man forever. According to God's timetable, now I'm looking in the future, there is going to come a time when judgment is going to come upon the nations. And as I've said so many times before, looking at the signs of the times, we very well could be in end times. I could be ministering to people who are going to stand before a holy God in judgment. Well, we do minister to people who will stand before God in his holy judgment, whether these are end times or not. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He he loved the world and did not want to see the world perish, but he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And God is gracious, and he gives man time, and he does strive with man, and he is striving with man even today that man would turn from his wicked ways, and man would come into that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that the judgments that we see would not come upon, not come upon the people of this nation and the people of the world. But the fact of the matter is people are going to refuse a relationship with Jesus Christ. We see a few times in the book of Revelation that the tribulation is coming upon people in very intense ways. And instead of repenting and coming to God, they're cursing God to his face. And every time man refuses a relationship with God, it's as if he is doing that today. And so last time we met, we saw the prophecies against Egypt. Now tonight, the judgments against the remaining nations that are listed. Now keep in mind in these prophecies, as with almost all prophecies, there is a long and a short to the prophecy. Once again, as I've said so many times, that today we would be able to look back and see that God prophesied something before it happened, it would be validated, obviously, through the Word of God, but also in the annuals of our history books. And it did come to pass <clears throat> that we can look back with the same surety of those prophecies back then and, and the fulfillment of them, that the prophecies that are still yet to come are going to come to pass as well. Just as God was faithful in the past, He doesn't change. He's going to be faithful in the future, and that should strengthen us both in our resolve to be obedient to God, but also in the truthfulness of the Word of God. And so the short in Jeremiah's day, again, were the destruction of these nations. The long, the long is going to be the day of the Lord. It's that day after the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the day of Jesus Christ. Then the day of the Lord. It's going to be that seven years of tribulation. It's going to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the millennial era. It's going to be the great white throne judgment all the way through into a new heaven and a new earth. And so the nations that are listed here are so that we would know just as what God said would come true in Jeremiah's day that it did. We would also know and have a surety that God's hand is upon all that goes on. Nothing goes on apart from the will of God and apart from the desires of the Lord. We saw when we studied Isaiah in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, it says, Remember the former things of old. Remember what's happened in the past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all of my pleasure. And so God's counsel, his word is going to stand. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. 
So as far as the judgments of God towards mankind, as far as God and how he is going to judge those who are apart from Christ, and it's essential to keep that in mind. Now, we did see in our James study, I don't believe it was this past Sunday, it was the Sunday before, that we are going to have to stand before the behemoth seat of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. But that's to judge my works. And maybe a better term would be an evaluation. An evaluation of my faithfulness and the things that I have done for the purpose of receiving a crown. Now, that was last Sunday. But there is going to be the great white throne judgment that mankind will stand before God apart from Jesus Christ and his only hope is is his own merit, what he has done. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, it says, And another book was open. First was the Lamb's book of life. And what God does is he opens up the book. Now keep in mind, God goes through this process because God is just. And so he follows justice. And so he opens up the Lamb's Book of Life. Who is, is this particular person written on that role? And if this person, uh, Harry Smith, if he's not written on that role, then it says, then another book was opened, which is the Book of Life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, and they were judged, each one according to his work. So we have the exhaustive record of every thought, every word and every deed of every unsaved person or every person apart from Jesus Christ who has ever lived. And the idea here is, is that if you're not coming based upon the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then these books of your works are open just to make sure, and again, because God is just, is this person able to get in according to their own merit? Now the Bible's very clear, nobody is going to be able to get in according to their own merit. And the actuality of the matter, the reality of the matter is, is this is just to show the charges that are brought against those people. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. We're told in the book of Romans that the only way man can get in according to their own merit is to be as good as God all the time. And even your best case scenario, a person will not be able to fit the criteria that is necessary because the Bible tells us that man, apart from Jesus Christ, will be judged for every unclean thought. We're told in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Luke 8, 17, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. They will be judged for every unclean word. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. They will be judged for every unclean deed. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And on top of all of that, the Bible speaks of degrees of punishment as well. In Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. And he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go along in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The judgments of God are thorough, and the judgments of God are complete. So, Keep in mind that in Jeremiah's day, God's instrument of judgment is Babylon, and we'll be looking at as his tool of judgment as we look at these various nations. In the day of the Lord, the judgments that come will come directly from the hand of God. And so chapter 47, the first nation up, that is Philistia. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. Now, Pharaoh is not the instrument of judgment that God is using in verse 1. He's just setting it in a time frame. We don't know for sure exactly when that was. It very well could be when Pharaoh was coming up north, and it was around the time when King Josiah was killed. But again, we don't know. But Babylon is going to be the instrument of judgment that comes. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, Behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflow 
an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping hooves of the strong horses, at the rushing of the chariots, at the rumbling of the wheels. The fathers will not look back for their children, lacking courage. It's going to be so terrifying, they're just going to leave their children and and run away. Verse 4, because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon on every helper who remains. Uh, The Philistines did have some kind of treaty, apparently, with Tyre and Sidon around that time. For the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kator. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant the remnant of their valley, how long will you cut yourselves? The idea is mourning. O you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet? Seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against seashores. There he has appointed it past week, there's been some tremendous floods going on in our northeast. You may have seen the videos of them. There was these massive torrents of water flowing through city streets, and it was up about the heights of doors, and it was just kind of an amazing sight that in America, a flood like this is able to happen. Well, they've come before. Matter of fact, these floods, they knew that they were coming. They knew that they were going to happen again, and the point of it is there was nothing that they could do about it. Rushing water is very powerful, it's very strong, and it's destroyed quite a few buildings, quite a few homes. This is what Philistia is facing when God sends Babylon up against them. Verse 2, it's why he used this example. Behold, waters rise out of the north, an overflowing flood. This flood is coming, and there's going to be absolutely nothing that they're able to do about it. And so really the first point, using Philistia as an example, is how God uses natural disasters as his tools of judgment. Many times they're sent to get our attention. Other times they're sent as instruments of their judgment. Creation is an undeniable way that man is able to know of the existence of God. When man refuses to acknowledge the existence of God, God will use his creation to slap man in the face, to get man's attention. During the end times, when Jesus was giving the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, he said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Kind of an amazing thing. Darkness and absolute darkness. What happens when the sun doesn't come up in the morning? We won't be here to experience it. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord, either because we have gone to be with the Lord through death or the rapture of the church. But there's going to come a time during the tribulation that the sun is going to be darkened. And there's man in absolute darkness. And the idea is is godless existence. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one from one end of heaven to the other. And so again, many times in the book of Revelation, we see how God uses creation as his instrument of judgment. And we even see the precursor to these things referred to as birth pangs in the Olivet Discourse. We see, as I just mentioned, the floods that are coming. Some of these floods, it seems like we've never heard of the degree and the frequency to which they're happening. Earthquakes seem to be hitting in more and more populated place. If you walked in and saw why our, our church is torn apart, you should have seen how it looked like this morning. It was really torn apart. But they're doing some upgrades for seismic reasons and for when the big one comes. So when the big earthquake comes, just come to church here and you'll be good. But it's pretty intense, the work that they're doing, because why? they know more earthquakes are coming. 
Well, they know more earthquakes are coming because earthquakes have come in the past. Naturally, they're going to come in the future. We know the big ones come in. It's going to knock everything off its foundation because the Bible says it's going to. And we just see these natural disasters and, again, uh, tsunamis. Every time there's an earthquake, at least in the Pacific, there's a tsunami warning. I've heard a tsunami before but never realized one of happening. I know they have happened before, but now it just seems like more and more there's this greater awareness of these things of these natural disasters. So the Philistines today, the Palestinians today, they should read of the judgments of Philistia back then, and just as surely as they came to pass back then, they'll come to pass even in, well, at some day in the future. Moving into chapter 48, once again, we're not going to go through the whole chapters, but we enter into the judgment of Moab. The Moabites and the Ammonites both came into being through an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. It says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 36, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father, the firstborn a son, and called his name Moab, for he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Moab was in the area that would be, well, probably in relationship to us, the border of Arizona and Nevada, you know, thinking of us as Israel in, in that area, so a little bit east and south of them. Moab and Ammon were both a thorn in Israel's side. Well, pretty much everywhere that we see of them in the scriptures. But during the time of Babylon, and Babylon coming to prominence in the area as a military strength, they got together, Judah, Judah was desperate, and they got together with the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they kind of formed this confederation for the purpose of protection. But really, what they're doing, and and now Jeremiah has proclaimed this, that Babylon was going to be God's instrument. In actuality, they're not getting together to come up against Babylon. They're coming together to come up against God. I mean, when, when God gives you warning, when God tells you some calamity that's going to come upon you because of your disobedience, and you come up against that, you try to brace against that, really what you're doing is you're coming up against God. In chapter 48, we're going to look again fairly quickly. We're going to skim through it, but we're going to look at judgments against Moab expressed in six paragraphs here. And the first is the proclamation of judgment in verses 1 through 2. Now, the cities that are listed here, half of them, more than half of them, they don't have a clue where those cities are or whatever, but they were just simply cities that existed in Moab. It says in verse 1, against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kerjothium is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab. In Heshbon they have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue you. The pitcher is an overwhelming force that cannot be withstood. And the promise here is of a continual pursuit until destruction. And the idea is, is, I mean, it's presented in ways of a warning. Now, man, the way I see from cover to cover in the scriptures, there's always opportunity to repent. There's always opportunity to get right with God. How would this apply to today? Well, there's the non-relenting pursuing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit never stops. The Holy Spirit continues to convict at all times. That's how God uses his word through the body of Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know somebody's being convicted when they lash out against you. They're very uncomfortable by that. It's not something that is pleasurable. So the Holy Spirit convicts until he is taken out of the way. How is the Holy Spirit taken out of the way? Through the rapture of the church. Now, it's not that the Holy Spirit is removed because the Holy Spirit is God and God is omnipresent. But as far as the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the church, there's going to come that time during the tribulation when it will be no more. The Holy Spirit's still going to convict during the time of tribulation, but no longer through the church. 
Secondly is a proclamation of intimidation, verses 6 through 8. Flee, save your lives. So it's kind of being, Moab's kind of being mocked here. Flee, save your lives, and be like the juniper in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken, and Chemosh shall go forth into captivity. That was the nation's chief god. His priests and his princes together, and the plunder shall come against every city. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Flee for protection. The idea here is, the warning is, for that which you have grown dependent upon. What is it that they have grown dependent upon? And we should be able to parallel this with our nation and the people of our nation as well. The works, the strongholds that they make, how they have strengthened themselves. United States is universally recognized as the most powerful nation in the world. How do you think they'll hold up? How do you think we'll hold up against God? Not, not much. Again, if you read all the way through to the cover, you don't see the United States mentioned here. Treasures. Well, we're probably one of the richest nations in the world, but again, that's not going to hold up against God. Our national gods, things that we have made gods, well, gods will be revealed, false gods will be revealed as being absolutely nothing and of no use when the judgment of the true living God comes upon mankind. Who can withstand God in the day of judgment? Well, They'll be able to run, and that's where the mocking comes. Flee, save your lives, but there's going to be no saving of lives. There's going to come that time, even in this nation, after the church is removed, that judgment is going to come, and nobody is going to be able to change that. The power of the United States, if it's still a world power at that time, can't change it. The riches that we have, all the riches in the world, can't change it. And then again, the false gods, well, they don't even really exist. We see a little picture of how things are going to be during that time in the future. Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, when judgment comes, it says, And they say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Once again, you see the hardness of man's heart asking to be saved from Jesus Christ. Don't they understand that it's Jesus Christ who is able to save them? And again, there's still the opportunity because we see in the book of Revelation, man will still come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during that time. Thirdly is a proclamation of complete destruction. Look over at verse 25. For the horn, when you see a horn in the scriptures such as it's used here, a lot of times that refers to power. For the horn of Moab is cut off and his arm, once again speaks of a man's power, his arm is broken, says the Lord. Human weakness in the face of divine strength is absolutely imperative. Well, it's definitely something that is going to be revealed. In Amos chapter 2, verse 2, But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the places of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. The strength of man during that time when judgment comes in our future, nobody's going to be able to stop it. Nobody will be able to withstand it. Fourthly is a proclamation against pride, verse 29. We have heard the pride of Moab, parathetical statement here, he's exceedingly proud, of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. Seems like the root of pretty much every everything that is contrary to God from at least the perspective of man is built upon pride somehow, some way. Pride, pride is the most original of sin. It's that which got the devil cast out of heaven. We see a picture of it in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. But as I look at this, you cannot look at it from the perspective of that's him. You've got to look at it from the perspective, far be it, that it would be me. Because again, what this is isn't so much that it's a picture of the devil, of Lucifer, but it's a picture of a person who is permeated with pride. Verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you have been cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart. So look here at, at, at the pride and how great his pride was. 
I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend from the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He's basically saying, I will be like God. Verse 15, kind of a play on words. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And we've read to the end of the book, and we know how that turns out for him. Pride is going to be judged. Matter of fact, that's what we, in the day of our salvation, it's that which it was imperative that we died to, was our pride. Because in our pride, it was all about what we were able to do for our lives. It was all about the wisdom that we had and knowing what was better for us, knowing what was worse for us. And then all of a sudden, we saw her face presented to us as it actually looked, at, looked like when the gospel was preached. And we had to come to that point of admitting we're wrong. As I've said so many times before, it's one of the hardest things of sharing the gospel is bringing that person to the point where they realize everything they've ever thought of, every perception that they've had of life and God and all, they were wrong. I thought I had it in my religious experience, but I was very far from it, not understanding the grace of God and the love of God and the desires of God and even the judgment of God. I was wrong. I was wrong in the way that I was conducting my life. I was wrong in the way that I taught my children. That was a hard one. I can remember around the dinner table after we were saved and not for very long and telling my children even some things that were contrary for what I had told them before and they, they're quick to bring those things up and having to tell them I was wrong. You know, these things that I did, I was wrong. And that's a hard thing to do, to come to that realization, but it's also a necessary thing to do. Fifthly is a proclamation of lamentation. Look at verses 31 and 32. Well, O gate, cry, O city, all of you Philistia are dissolved. Where am I at? <laughs> Let me get back over to Jeremiah. I was in Isaiah still. You think, what in the world is he reading? Okay, let's try that again. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore I will wail for Moab, and I will cry out for all of Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kimharis, O vine of Simbab, Sibma. I will weep for you with the weeping of Jasser. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the sea of Jasser. The plunderer has fallen on your summer fruit and on your vintage. The idea here is, is that, and we see these with each one of the nations, is God expressing remorse for the judgment that is coming upon these nations. The Lord has absolutely no pleasure in the judgment that he brings upon the nation. That's why he sent his son, so this would not happen. That's why he made it by grace. It was so easy. But man, pushes grace aside and continues in in his works, either for his self-pleasure or his religious desires. And what he does is he just brings the judgment of God upon him. Turn over to, it's not going to be on the board, but in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18. Remember, Ezekiel is the contemporary of Jeremiah. And Ezekiel, speaking of the judgments that are, are to come as well, in Ezekiel chapter 18 Verse 32, verses 30 through 32. I'll read verse 21, then I'll go over to 30 and 32. It says, But if a wicked man turns or repents from his sins which he has committed and keeps all of my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live and not die. And so God's giving man an opportunity. He's given, obviously here, sinful man an opportunity because he says, if a wicked man turns. So in God's sight, a good man wouldn't have to turn because a good man has already been repentant in the sight of God. But here, this is a wicked man, and it doesn't matter what his wickedness was. And we can even look at wicked people, and we can kind of turn our nerves towards them, but we need to turn the gospel towards them, because you were a wicked person. Wicked person is just anybody that is apart from Jesus Christ. Now over at verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. He says here, repent. 
and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And that's the idea here, this proclamation of lamentation. You see the heart of God that breaks in the face of the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the wicked, the judgment of the ungodly. And then lastly, as I said so many times before, as God proclaims judgment, never does he leave hope out of the equation. And lastly, we'll see here, at least in this chapter, Moab, a proclamation of hope, verses 46 through 47. Woe to you, Moab, the people of Chemosh, People of Chemosh perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. He's speaking of the time still in our future. He's speaking during the millennial rule, the days when God's grace will go across the world, and those who previously were destined for destruction now will be part of God's kingdom. Again, when God pronounces judgment, he always pronounces hope as well. Entering into chapter 49, we have the judgment of Ammon, verses 1 and 2, against the Ammonites. and they started consuming some of Israel's cities and the southern nation's cities as well. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. Ammon had received a reprieve in that Nebuchadnezzar, we see this, and we're not going to go there, but in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 18 through 20, Nebuchadnezzar was marching westward, and he was fully intending to attack either Jerusalem or Ammon. Now, either one of those nations, it was in his sights to destroy. And fortunately for Ammon, Nebuchadnezzar was directed towards Jerusalem, but Ammon, it just put off their coming judgment. Now, the reason that Ammon was judged was because also their alliance with Judah and Moab, but also their attitude towards the perceived destruction of God's people. All of Israel's enemies and allies should remember this, the promise that God gave, I will bless those who bless you in Genesis chapter 12, and I will curse those who curse you. But because of their attitude, God did send Babylon, and they did destroy Ammon. It was after that time that Ammon ceased to exist as a nation. If you'll take note today, Israel is still there. Then we have the judgment of Edom, Chapter 49, verses 17 through 18. Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all of its plagues. As the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. The purpose for the judgment that Edom would receive is his jealousy towards Israel. Edom came about through Jacob's brother Esau and his denial and refusal of God and his need for God. Its name arrived for Esau. Esau means hairy. He was described as a hairy man. Edom, his nation, is described as red, probably the color of this terrain that's out there, but also it came about because of the color of the stew that was prepared for him by his brother that he, he traded his birthright for. But the idea is, is that Edom are people of the flesh. In Genesis twenty-seven forty-one, it says, so Esau hated Jacob. And so you see this picture of this man representative of Edom and this man representative of Israel. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning... Uh, the days of mourning for my father at hand, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so that attitude prevailed all through time and through that nation until that nation was destroyed. The last Edomites that we see are the Herods. Herod the Great was an Edomite, and they are the last ones that we, that we see in, in the scriptures. 
Next is the judgment of Damascus in verse 23 through 27. Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city of praise not deserted? Not deserted, the city of my joy. Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will continue, or kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the places of Ben-Hadad. Damascus was a constant enemy. They weakened the northern country, and the damage they did towards Israel would be that which would inspire God towards the judgments. We see that many times the attacking armies would enter Israel from the north, and that would be the area of Damascus. So a lot of times Damascus would be taken captive, destroyed, conquered, whatever, and then Babylon it played out with Babylon, and then they came down through that way into Israel. Amos chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron, but I will send a fire into a house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And then we have the judgments of Kedar and Hazor in verses 28 through 33. Because of time, I'm not going to go through and read them. But what these two people are, not so much a nation, but these are two nomadic tribes of the Arabian uh, desert in that area, really the Sahara Desert. And they lived in that area, and they were kind of insignificant. And so I'm kind of looking at them, and not, a much, not much is said, and there's not much to be discovered biblically and, and historically about them. And the only reason I can really see that they were included in this proclamation of judgments is because of their insignificance. Because there's nobody insignificant, too insignificant, as we'll see this Sunday morning, to be saved, but there's nobody too insignificant to be judged as well. Judgment is going to come upon all people and all class of people. And so as judgment is coming upon the surrounding nations, it came upon the strong, but it also came upon the insignificant as well. And we see a picture of that as well in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. And these are the ones who are asking them to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And so it's not just those who are great pride and great significance. It's also going to be the insignificant as well. And then lastly, we see the judgment of Elam, verse 34 through 39. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam. They, they were known as being archers, the foremost of their might. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four corners of heaven and scatter them towards those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go, for I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam, and I will destroy from there the king and the princes, said the Lord. But it shall come to pass in the latter days, I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. Again, never does God leave man without hope. Elam's sin is, is that they tried to take advantage of Babylon when they were out doing the Lord's work. When Babylon was out doing their conquering, Elam rebelled and tried to um, take Babylon when it was at a weak point, and God exercised judgment towards that nation as well. So, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. There's going to be judgment, but there's also going to be eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are his faithful, to those who have submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But as for today, 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come that ju- for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And then lastly, Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That being the case, that should motivate us. As truly as those things God said they were going to happen in the past and they did happen in the past, the things that we see that are still going to happen in the future, the judgment of the nations, and don't look at it just as a nation because nations are filled with people, those people who will receive judgment because of the terror of the Lord, we need to be a people who go out and persuade man, present the gospel in a way, in a manner, that they're able to understand it, digest it, and receive of it. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, just even as we have from time to time as we go through your word, these pictures of judgment. Yes, we study grace and we rejoice in grace, but judgment is a reality. In Exodus chapter 34, when you were proclaiming your name before Moses, you proclaimed yourself to be gracious, merciful, and long-suffering, but also a God of judgment. And so as that is a reality, I pray, Father, that we would take note of that reality, and that reality would be a motivation in our lives. We would rejoice in that we will not be judged, but we also, Father, pray that we would be a people who see those who, if you did come back today, if today was the day that they were going to have to stand before your throne, that, Lord, they would truly receive judgment. And I pray again, Father, that through a spirit of love and spirit of obedience to our Lord, that we would be found faithful in all that you have called us to do. And so, Father, we just lift up tonight, thanking you for it, Lord, and you're so good. In Jesus' name, amen. You all stand, please. Continue to pray for our church. Pray that they put it back together, number one. Also, um, I, I meant to put it in the bulletin, and I didn't. And I was going to announce it, and I didn't, so I will do it now. Our elections are this Tuesday. Um, the people that put out the, um, the voters' guides, they don't print them anymore. They send them as an attachment on an email and a PDF. If you're on the prayer chain, I sent a PDF out on the prayer chain for the voters' guide. If you want a voter's guide, email me, Pastor Mike, at ccont.org. It's in the bulletin, and I'll forward it to you. If you need one printed, let me know, and I'll print one out, and I'll have it for you on Sunday. But that's how things get changed. That's how the hand of God moves in a mighty way as born-again believers go out and vote. One other thing, we're going to be a polling place here this Tuesday, so just keep that up in prayer as well. God bless you guys. think about this last song I was thinking as pastor was talking and giving us the word about the opportunity he gives to the world uh, even after he comes and takes the church away that he gives because his love is loyal and uh, what a blessing Muslims Hindus all the false religions of the world, you know, whatever they might be, Church of Scientology, all those false religions will be given an opportunity because his love is loyal. I could never earn your heart I could never reach that far But you have pulled me close You'll never let me go I'm safe forever in your arms Your promises I cannot break And I know you will never change your love is 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 for faithful men I 
Amen. We'll see you on Sunday morning.